0: passage for today is 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you're here and you're married, I want you to think back to uh, when you first thought about getting married. If you're here and you're not married and you want to be married, I want you to think and consider why it is that you want to be married. Why do we decide to get married? Why do we want to get married? you guys think of some of the answers that you have for those questions? This is the audience participation part of the service. Any answers to that question? Why did you want to get married? Why do you want to get married? Any answers to this? Not be lonely. To not be lonely. (laughs) Yeah. Someone else? What's that? I loved her. I loved her. (laughs) Said being in a relationship it's better to be married than with dad. There you go. I want to have sex in a way that is pleasing to God. We talked about that last week in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Someone else? Reasons to get married. What's that? To have a helper. To have a helper, yeah. That's right there. And the reason, one of the reasons God created the woman is. Marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Someone else? Reasons to get married? God said it was part of his plan, but it's, mm-hmm. good. it's good for us. Yep. It's good for the man to not be alone. That's right. It's interesting, answer, asking these questions when we were overseas, often the answers were more practical. In the West, the answers are often more sentimental. In the East, you ask people, why do you get married? And i was like, well, financial stability. I want security. I want someone who will be with me and care for me, even in my old age. It's a bit more practical than we tend to be in the West, which is a little more sentimental. Often, our answers to these questions are good. Often, our answers to these questions are right. And often, our answers to these questions demonstrate some important aspects of God's design for marriage. And while not necessarily sinful... Our approach to marriage is often, even in our best attempts to be faithful, off-center or slightly misaligned, like a picture on a wall that needs to be straightened or leveled out. Often, when we think about marriage, we think about marriage with ourselves at the center Think about marriage in terms of what it is that I want or the benefits that I want to receive from this marriage relationship. And while those things are not necessarily bad and often show us one of many important reasons why God created marriage at the end of the day, often these come up short because marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. Now, there's a sense in which marriage is about you, at least partially. God created marriage for us in a very real way and in a very important sense, but not finally, not in an ultimate sense, because at the end of the day, marriage is about God and even more so in a more focused way, marriage is about Christ. Now, Christians take marriage seriously. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it may be that you think that a passage like ours that we're going to spend some time studying seems very strict and very serious when it comes to marriage. But Christians take marriage seriously because God created it to be a picture of an incredibly beautiful truth marriage is about Christ, and it is to picture an eternal relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and it is to picture in our own marriages the kind of relationship that our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God has with his people, and what our covenant-making and covenant-keeping Christ Jesus has with his bride, the church. If you have your Bibles, turned with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be spending some time looking at the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. And if you are here and you haven't received one of these uh, notebooks, do we have any of these left? Are they all gone? There's two left at the back. Two left. If you would like to grab these and you plan to be here uh, in the weeks ahead, I am happy for you to take those. I am happy for us as a church to buy more of these. Uh, we are using these as a church as we work our way through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians and study through it. It's helpful to put your notes on one side and to be able to read ahead and to be able to have all of your notes from these sermons in one place. I can recommend those to you. Uh, We are in a passage where an apostle of Jesus, the apostle Paul, is in the middle of answering questions that a group of young Christians in a young church had for him. The Corinthian believers, these are believers from the, the city in Asia Minor, the city of Corinth, have written down and sent to the Apostle Paul. And they were asking him some questions that he's now answering in this part of the letter. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answers their questions. And in today's passage, Paul is answering questions that they had about marriage and about divorce. Um, As we look at this passage, we're gonna be looking at it in five points. Our main point from the passage is that marriage is a good gift from God to be treasured, to be pursued, and to be protected. This is an overarching umbrella main point. Marriage is a good gift from God to be treasured, to be pursued, and to be protected. And I pray that as we spend some time considering marriage both in terms of God's original design, but also in light of uh, the fall in our own sin, that we would be encouraged in looking to Christ and the kind of committed relationship that He has entered into with us. And that that would give us wisdom in being able to be faithful for those of us who are married in our own marriages. And I pray that if you're single, that this would be a help to you as both you perhaps consider marriage in the days ahead, to know God's design, but. Also, so that if you're a member of our church and single, that you'd be able to encourage fellow members who are in their marriages uh, to be faithful to Christ. As we turn to our passage, um, some things here to clarify from our passage. If you were listening as Ashley read it, you'll, you'll perhaps have noticed some of the language going on there. Paul gives a command In verse 10, to begin, to the married, I give this command, and he says this phrase, not I, but the Lord. He says, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And then in verse 12, you see that he says there, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest. I need to clarify really quickly what Paul is doing here. Paul is not saying that he is um, all of a sudden under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and this part is inspired and the rest of it isn't. What Paul is doing here is he is marking off commands here that Jesus had already given during his earthly ministry and that are recorded in in the, in the, the gospel testimonies. What Paul is doing here is being very careful to delineate what are the things that he's saying on his own under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says that at the end of chapter 7, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he says, I think I have the Holy Spirit also. He's being careful to delineate which of these things that I'm saying are things that Jesus has already said. And which of these these things that I'm going to address did Jesus not speak to that he's speaking to uh, under the inspiration alone? Now this is... Um, Very important for us, because what Paul does in verses 10 and 11 is he's linking in the passage that Vincent read for us earlier in our scripture reading. He's also linking in passages like Matthew 5, speak to marriage and divorce, and passages like Mark 10. Now this is an important apologetic caveat and Ryan, this is for you, but this is for the rest of us too. There are, many, there are many atheists and agnostics who will seek to undermine or subvert Christianity and say that what we have in the New Testament are a conglomeration of myths that grew up around the person of Jesus and were a hodgepodge of people's ideas that they put together over a period of time in order to try to control a, a certain community. What you have here in 1 Corinthians 7 is someone in perhaps the 50s A.D., maybe early 60s A.D., within 20 or 30 years of Jesus ascending to heaven, finishing his ministry, you have one of Jesus' followers being very careful to delineate which of the things he's writing down is actual words of Jesus, and which of the things he's writing down are not the words of Jesus. And this is so important for you to notice as just another evidence that what's happening in the New Testament is actual eyewitness testimony and actual people seeking to be faithful to Christ and living their lives and following his great commission and in being led by his spirit that he sent to establish the church. So when he says, I not the Lord, in verse 12, or in verse 10, not I but the Lord, what he's saying is I'm repeating in verses 10 and 11, Jesus' commands from Matthew 19, Matthew 5 and Mark 10, and summarizing it, but in the verses that follow, addressing another unique situation that Jesus did not address, that of two two non-Christians who get married and then one of them becomes a Christian and are now in a spiritually mixed marriage. And we'll address that as we go on. But in light of that caveat, I want to turn to Matthew 19 because what Paul does here at the beginning is he loops in Jesus' teaching from the Gospel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 19. And as we begin, our point number one is God's design for marriage. Point number one is God's design for marriage. If we're to understand his commands in terms of marriage and particularly in terms of divorce, we need to be able to understand his original design for marriage. If we are to embrace God's teaching about marriage and divorce, we need to grasp something of God's original design in marriage. And Jesus does this in Matthew 19 in answering the Pharisees' questions about divorce. The Pharisees in Matthew 19 come to Jesus and ask him a question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Verse 3. Now the religious leaders like to ask Jesus questions in order to stump him or enable Or in order to try to undermine his acceptance by the people because they were jealous of him and they weren't believing in him. They were also seeking to solve a bit of their own theological um, squabbles over an interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 which was where uh, Moses established a process for divorce in the nation of Israel and they are seeking to have an answer to a question that had often been asked throughout Israel's history Is it ever lawful? Is it ever sanctioned by God to have a divorce at all? And if so, what reason would lead to such a divorce? And this is what Jesus answers here. He says, verse four, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. As we consider Jesus' teaching on marriage, you notice that Jesus doesn't go directly to Deuteronomy 24 to address the question of why Moses allowed divorce in certain cases, but went all the way back to the beginning to consider God's original design. We talked last week about the importance of us and reading our Bibles and in making sense of the world around us to be able to ask four questions about the things that God has created. We need to be able to ask questions like what Jesus is doing here, what was God's original design for anything that we have here in this world? Looking back to God's original creation, we need to be able to ask questions in light of Genesis 3, how has sin affected God's good design? We need to also then consider how can Christ redeem Even things that have been affected by sin. How can Christ redeem things? And then looking to the future, what do all these things point forward to and what will they look like one day? Well, here, Jesus is pointing these Jews back to God's original design. And what we have here is Jesus pointing back to Genesis 2 to understand marriage itself. And before we get to his teaching on divorce, I want to highlight for us God's original design for marriage. If you consider the Bible's teaching on marriage, there's many passages that we can point to. In some sense, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 are the clearest passages when it comes to an understanding of marriage and divorce. But when we think about God's original design, Let me encourage you to spend some time this afternoon if you haven't spent some time recently doing this and read Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 to 33. Because what we have in Ephesians five is God's most clear teaching on what God's plan for marriage was, both in terms of his original design, but also in terms of the mystery that marriage is, uh, by God, intended to be. Marriage is, Paul says in in Ephesians 5, a mystery. And it is designed by God to be a reflection and representation of the kind of covenant that God enters into with his people in the new covenant. What the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 is that marriage is a mystery and that God has hid in marriage from the beginning... A picture of his redemption plan and that picture is the relationship with Christ in the church so if you have been married if you have entered into a Christian marriage perhaps you had Ephesians 5 read at your your wedding gathering as you covenanted before God and before witnesses to enter into a relationship many of us will have read that Ephesians 5 picture because it's the clearest picture of both the commands for husbands and wives how it is that we are to relate to each other in marriage but also to understand God's whole plan of redemption that is to be displayed through marriage. And what marriage is in its original design is to be a picture of the covenant that God enters into with his people. And this is why God takes marriage so seriously. Now friends, as we think about God's plan of redemption, we need to understand the whole picture of our Bibles. Our Bibles from beginning to end is a story of God Creating humanity, humanity rebelling against him and sinning against him, and then his plan, a a long plan in the making of taking sinners who rebelled against him and uh, reconciling them to him through a covenant relationship. What God has done in his plan of redemption is he has brought sinners who did not deserve his love and his kindness and his salvation and he has pledged himself to them in eternal self-sacrificing and self-giving love in such a way that sinners like you and me can be brought into an eternal relationship with him in which he promises to love us forever. The Bible says that we, all of us, have sinned against God and that we, because of our sin, deserve God's good and just judgment for our sins. The Bible tells us that we deserve now only to be rejected by God, to be cast out from his presence and to be punished forever because of our crimes against him. But the Bible tells us that rather than doing that, which he would have been good and right and just to do, God did the, action. he actually did the opposite of this. God actually put a plan together, which he had from all, all eternity, to save sinners. And to not only save us, but to enter into an eternal relationship with us. And the way that he did this was by sending his own son, Jesus. We sang about this in How Deep the Father's Love for Us. He, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to live the perfect life that we did not live and to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He took upon himself the sin that we deserved. And he was raised from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. And he's now at the right hand of the Father, preparing to return someday soon, it could be today, in order to bring his people into uh, an eternal relationship uh, in the eternal state. As we think about marriage, we must understand the reason that God takes marriage so seriously is because of what you pictured. This isn't a throwaway thing that we can decide to um, enter into and then decide the next day to enter out of without taking it seriously. Because in marriage, God has preserved a picture of this whole eternal plan. The plan that he has had from all eternity to bring sinners into a relationship with him through Christ. As we think about this covenant relationship that God has with us as you read your Bible particularly your Old Testament one of the one of the the best ways to understand our Old Testament is to understand the covenants that God has entered into with his people that ultimately leads up to the new covenant it it begins with a covenant made with Noah and then with Abraham uh, with Moses and the people of Israel and with David and then promises of the days ahead which Christ fulfilled in which God enters into this final new covenant with his people. And what he has done in entering into a covenant with his people through Christ is he has made promises to love us forever and to commit himself to us forever. Now we live in a day and age in which we have commitment phobia. We live in a day and age when most of us hesitate to make any kind of commitment. We live in a day that loves open options. We love love not making decisions and not making them too quickly, sometimes not making them at all so that we're not locked into some kind of commitment that we're going to regret later. Friends, as you think about the kind of love that God has for us, do you... Can you recognize how good it is for God to commit himself to us, his people? And for God to commit himself to you. This is a shocking thing, but it's a wonderful thing too. What this says is that when God enters into a relationship with you, brothers and sisters, in Christ, he is committing himself to you for all eternity. What this truth tells us is that God has made extravagant promises to us to love us forever, and to not only that, but to commit himself to us in such a way that he's going to persevere with us. He's gonna stand beside us, he's gonna assist us on our way to heaven, and he's one day gonna bring us into glory to be in an intimate relationship with him for all eternity. The reason that God takes marriage so seriously is because it's supposed to picture, it's supposed to represent the kind of covenant relationship that God has made with us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the gospel message is an invitation to enter into an eternal relationship with God, one in which God commits himself to you forever, promises to take away your sin, and to give you Christ's righteousness, promises then to stand beside you and assist you as you seek to live a life that's pleasing to him. And one day he promises to Come back and to usher you into his joyful presence forever. And for those of us who are Christians, we should rejoice at this reality. And if we're to understand anything of marriage, we need to first of all be understand, we need to understand what it is that marriage is to be pointing us to, and it's this eternal reality, the reality of a covenant making and covenant keeping God. Now, notice in terms of our our own day, uh, that we don't get to define what marriage is. God does that. Notice, too, that we don't get to redefine marriage in any way. God has designed it. He's created it. He defines what it is. And he has planned from eternity past for marriage, human marriage, to point to this eternal marriage, that of a relationship with God and his people. And before we get into thinking together about our own experiences of marriage or even divorce, I want to hold out to all of us the the beauty of God's design in a committed relationship. As much as we may struggle to be a, a people that enter into commitments or even keep such commitments, I think all of us should be able to see this as a good thing that God would commit himself to us. And even as we think about our own attempts to be faithful in marriage or even faithful to him at all in the days ahead, we should look to Christ's faithfulness and God's faithfulness as a covenant-making and keeping God that would help us to have an, an, an example to follow. Now, as we enter into thinking not only about marriage, but God's teaching here on divorce, I want to acknowledge that people are going to enter into this conversation today with different experiences, different experiences regarding marriage, different experiences regarding their parents' marriage or even their own marriage, different experiences regarding divorce, maybe that some people have experienced divorce in their lives in a close way that has created hurt beyond repair. Maybe that some have uh, looked back and been thankful for divorce because it was a divorce that protected them from uh, an abusive person. Regardless of our own contexts, I hope all of us should be able to, in some sense, set aside our own experiences in order to see God's original design and to understand why it is that He takes marriage so seriously even as we seek to be faithful to him, whether it is through marriage or in certain cases divorce, that we would approach these things not in terms of ourselves at the center, but with God at the center. That's point number one, God's original design for marriage. Point number two, then, is God's command for married Christians. God's command for married Christians. Now, he... Has this command back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You see it there. Verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. It's the command in verse 10. God's command for married Christians, summarized, stay married. God's command for those who are married, stay married. Now, this may Uh, seem very simplistic in some ways. But do you see here that God's standard for marriage is high, and God's expectations for those who are married is high too? We are to treasure the good gift of marriage, and we are to treasure it, to pursue it, and to protect it as much as we can and as much as we're able. Now he's linking here Jesus' teaching from, uh, from his gospel ministry that are recorded there in the gospels, but... As he says, not I, but the Lord, he's saying Jesus taught this too. A wife is not to leave her husband, and a husband, as it says there at the end of verse 11, is not to divorce his wife. The command here generally is stay married, or to flip it around, do not enter into divorces. This is general teaching. We're going to talk in a moment that there are uh, some cases in which the bible allows for divorce but i want to hold out for you this general command so that all of us understand this clearly god's design for marriage is that it would be a lifelong commitment God's design for marriage is that it would be a marriage between one man and one woman for life now our own human marriages are not eternal our relationship with christ is eternal jesus even tells us that when we enter heaven when we enter the eternal state We will not get married there. We will not remain married from our human marriages. Our marriages are temporal. They are earthbound and they are temporary. And they are to be these pointers to this eternal reality. Reality that is the relationship between Christ and the church. And that day when we are brought into that eternal, intimate relationship with Christ, We will be checking our marriages at the door of heaven. But that being said, the the lifelong nature, until death do we part, is important for us to grasp. It is in its lifelong commitment that we are able to image something of the eternal relationship that God has entered into with his people. But this means, friends, in your marriage that we need to stick with them. So if you're here and you're a Christian and you're married to a Christian... The command here from Jesus and from Paul is stick with your marriage. You should not see divorce generally as an option. A very practical bit of advice that I received from my marriage counselor when my wife and I, Bev, were going through marriage counseling. We were encouraged when we fight, and married couples do fight, when we have conflict, married couples do have conflict. It may be shock to you. The the, the advice was, don't use the D word in your fights. And the D word is divorce. Says don't even use the word. And in general, unless there's some extreme situation that happens, this is how we need to approach our marriages, those of us who are married friends. We need to stick with our marriages in such a way that we don't continue to think about divorce as an option for us. But... Pursue our spouses in marriage and seek to love each other and to help each other in being able to keep that covenant firm. And what this means to friends, if, if you are here as a member of Emmanuel, let me encourage you to help other married couples fight for their marriages. Even if you're single friends. We'll talk about this a bit more later. Let me encourage even the singles among us to spend some time with married couples and to do what you can to encourage married couples to keep these commitments, these marriage vows that we've made. We, as a a culture, speak vows to one another, and those vows are helpful summaries of the biblical teaching on marriage uh, for us to remember. And we hear the same vows over and over again when we attend weddings, and it's helpful for us uh, to remember the kinds of commitments that we've made to one another. And those vows are helpful often, not when things are going well, when things are going smoothly, but to remember when things are going difficult. Let me encourage you, married couples, to bring other people into your marriages. To be honest when things aren't going well. To lean on your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, your fellow members, to help you keep these commitments. We should, as a church, be helping each other follow Jesus, and that includes in being faithful to these commands of sticking with our marriage. Point number three, God's command for the unlawfully divorced Christian. You see it here in verse 11. Number three is God's command for the unlawfully divorced Christian. Now, I use the language of unlawfully divorced, meaning... If you have entered into a marriage and you have abandoned that marriage and yet you didn't have a biblical reason for that divorce, Paul says you need to be reconciled to your husband or your wife, for 11. Now, I'm going to have you turn really quickly to Malachi chapter 2. What we have in Malachi chapter 2 is a really helpful image from the Old Testament to help us understand how we should think about unlawful divorces. If you look at Malachi chapter 2, God is angry with the people of Israel in Malachi chapter 2 because they have been entering into marriages with Jews, having children, and then as they get older and richer, abandoning the wives of their youth, that is, the wife that they married when they were young. And they are trading their spouses in for new and younger wives. God is angry with them because they are breaking off marriages unlawfully. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. It says that God is angry and he's not accepting their offerings. Why, you ask, verse 14, because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What God is saying here is, if you have broken off a marriage unlawfully, the command for you is to enter back into that relationship again, because God is standing witness over those vows that you made and holding you accountable to them. And in God's eyes, what this implies, in God's eyes, an unlawful divorce God isn't recognizing as is legitimate and is actually holding you accountable to go back to that spouse that you've abandoned and to keep those vows that you've made. He views it as a lifelong commitment. And for you to break that unlawfully is sin. And the command here from Jesus and the Apostle Paul is to reconcile with your original spouse. It says here, God was witness to these vows. Weddings, as you think about your own wedding and think back to the invite list that you made, when you think about sending out those invitations to the people that you wanted to be there and wanted to buy dinner for, right? How many of us invited God to, to our wedding? Well, we, we thought about him. I don't think we sent him an invitation, but what this says is whether he was invited or not, he was there, and as the one who created marriage and the one who stands over marriage as judge, he is holding all of us accountable to those vows that we made. He was there. He stood witness to it. He stood as judge over it, and he's going to hold you accountable for what you do with those vows that you made. And there's a sense in which that's heavy. But I want all of us to feel the heaviness here. God is jealous for marriage. He's jealous here for women that are being abandoned and left alone at a time when they wouldn't be able to provide for themselves. He's jealous for those women, those daughters of his own that he loves. But he's jealous for these marriages to be a a picture, a true picture of what his love is like, a covenant-keeping love. It's important for us, friends, to think about our marriage, not with ourselves at the center, but with God at the center, and not with our own desires at the center, but God's desires at the center. We should have a concern for what God says is right and wrong. And if any of us here have abandoned a marriage or are even thinking of abandoning a marriage for reasons that are not biblical or lawful, the command for you (coughs) is to be reconciled to your spouse. If you have questions about this, and I think questions on marriage or divorce are some of the most common that that I might receive as as a pastor throughout (coughs) the years, let me encourage you to speak to A pastor to your own pastor or elders to help you sort out any particular situation that you're in. It may be that if you have abandoned a marriage that was wrong, things have moved to a point where you won't be able to do this. But as much as depends on you, let me encourage you to be faithful, to be reconciled if you can. Point number four, God's command then for spiritually mixed marriages. Point number four, God's command for spiritually mixed marriages. Here, Paul, and this is the the longest section of this um, passage, verses 12 and following, addresses the unique situation of what do we do in a spiritually mixed marriage. What I mean by that is a marriage in which one of the spouses is a Christian and one is not. Now, this is an issue that Jesus didn't address because the gospel had not progressed to the nations and to the Gentiles the way that it had in Paul's day, through his ministry of taking the gospel to the nations. And as the gospel went forward, as it went into different cities, and as people responded to that gospel message, there were situations in which two non-Christians who had already been married, one of them gets saved and the other doesn't. And it looks like there were couples here in Corinth that were contemplating divorcing their non-Christian spouses that they had entered into a marriage relationship with out of a concern, perhaps, that being in such a close relationship with a pagan spouse, perhaps an idol-worshipping spouse, a concern that in this marriage relationship, that being so close with a pagan spouse now as as a Christian was going to have a negative effect on them, and in fact was going to have a corrupting influence on them. And so Paul here addresses the case that Jesus did not address in the Gospels what happens in a spiritually mixed marriage. Now, as we piece together what kind of context was going on in Corinth for us to understand the the teaching here, my understanding is that these Christians were reading their Old Testaments and having their Old Testaments read to them. If you've ever read passages like Ezra, chapter 9 and 10, there's sections of the Old Testament where it becomes obvious that Jews had entered into marriage relationships with, uh, the, with the, the pagan nations around them, particularly men marrying pagan-worshipping spouses, wives, and then having children that were no longer worshiping the true God, but were now being led astray by their moms into worshiping these pagan gods and goddesses. Ezra 9 and 10 is a shocking passage in some ways. Because that passage, the command for these people is you need to put away your pagan spouse, and you even need to put away your pagan children. You need to cut them off, and remove them from among you and end that relationship. Now imagine being a Corinthian Christian and sitting in your church gathering on a Sunday morning and having Ezra 9 and 10 read on a Sunday morning and then scratching your head and trying to figure out is this what I need to do with my pagan worshiping spouse? Do I need to cut them off? Look at what Paul says here in verses 12 and following. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, skip then to verse 16. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. And husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. What Paul is saying here is Ezra 9 and 10, for the the new covenant Christian and the, the new covenant people of God, when you have a spiritually mixed marriage, the Christian spouse should not divorce their unbelieving husband or wife in order to make themselves holy to the Lord. No, God is saying that in his view these relationships are sanctified not in the sense of your non-christian spouse is saved but in the sense of these non-christian house members and family members your non-christian spouse and kids are not making you unclean before the lord that's what he means there i think in verse 14 where he says otherwise your children would be unclean I think when he says that, what he's saying is, if you follow that line of logic, you'd have to get rid of your children too, not just your non-Christian spouse. If you're really going to follow Ezra 9 and 10, you'd have to go the whole way. But he's saying, no, we don't need to do this. In God's eyes, he has made these people, in his, uh, from his perspective, and according to his judgment, holy or clean. In the sense of not being a corrupting influence, or an influence that would make you all unclean. Now this is a pretty fascinating passage, and one that's important for us on on a number of levels. First of all, what what we need to hear from this, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what Paul is implying here and what he says even more clearly at the end of chapter 7, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we should not enter into marriage with a non-Christian if we're a Christian. Paul is not here justifying entering into a relationship with a non-Christian and using this as an excuse for why we would do it. And he makes it clear at the end of chapter 7, you, you may get married if you're a widow, if you may get married if you're single, but only in the Lord, that is only to a Christian. He makes this even more clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says to not enter into a relationship in which you would be unequally yoked. But the first thing that this passage is saying is we should not... Implying is that we should not enter into a relationship with a non-Christian. That's not God's plan. But for those who find themselves in a marriage with a non-Christian, and this may happen because you got married as a non-Christian to a non-Christian, and you came to the Lord, you shouldn't abandon your marriage, but pursue it. And pray for your spouse, verse 16, with the hope that God may save your spouse in the days ahead. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 3 to the women who find themselves in a very similar situation as this, married to non-Christian husbands. He says you need to lovingly, lovingly serve and care for your husband and hope that through your example that he would come to know Christ. Paul says the same thing here. If you're married to a non-Christian, love your spouse faithfully and pray for them and hope that you'd be able to have such an influence on them that they would come to know. This is a way that in a fallen world, Christ can redeem marriage and allow those who are in a difficult life situation have hope that God can meet them where they are. Notice another application for us here is uh, that we have enough grace from God to persevere through a difficult marriage. See, this is a, a hard command for those that are married to an unchristian Christian. And regardless of how that happened, it could be that you thought you were marrying a Christian and that spouse turned out to not be a Christian. But regardless of how it happened, if you find yourself in a spiritually mixed marriage, there's enough grace. God's grace is sufficient for you to persevere even through a difficult marriage. Here, perhaps the most difficult kind of marriage, being married to somebody, tied to somebody with whom you have the most important thing not in common, that of Christ. There is grace sufficient for those married to a non-Christian to persevere in lovingly being a husband or a wife to an unbelieving spouse, and with God's help, being able to have some kind of good influence, whether on your spouse or on your children or both. There is grace sufficient for difficult marriages. Friends, another application here, If, if you're... you're married to a Christian you should rejoice that you are married to a Christian and it may be that you're in a difficult place in your marriage I, I don't think that this is an application I would make often but in some ways you should look at this and realize it could be worse you could be tied for life with somebody who is not a Christian you should thank God that you're married to a Christian and at the very least that you have Christ which is the most important thing in common with them let me encourage you all to live in your marriage like a Christian And to not live in your marriage like a non-Christian. To not treat your marriage like you might if you were not a Christian. Don't be the kind of spouse, friends, if you're married, that makes it difficult for your spouse to live like a Christian in your marriage. Let me encourage you, friends, to live like a Christian in the way that you relate to your spouse. And we'll think another minute or two about what that might look like. You see, then, here, point number... God's command for the deserted or the abandoned. The command here is in some cases it may be that the spouse has to allow their fellow spouse to leave the marriage and to permit a divorce, to let them go in peace it says. See that um, in verse 16. Paul says Oh, sorry, 15. If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound. In such cases, God has called you to live in peace. Now, there are going to be situations, though it was not God's original intention for marriage, which is to be a lifelong commitment. Sometimes, in a fallen world, divorce is biblically permitted. And sometimes, it's even sanctioned. Jesus, in Matthew 19, gives a, a, an exception for when it is that, marriage, uh, that divorce is permitted in cases of sexual immorality. It looks like there, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, that because of the, the place that sex has as the sign of the covenant of marriage, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 6, that actually unites two and makes two one flesh because that sign of the covenant of marriage, that of sex, is so important that when that, is, um, when that takes place with someone that is not your spouse or somebody outside of your marriage, it does such irreparable damage to the marriage that in cases of sexual immorality, Jesus here is allowing for a divorce, though not commanding it, but allowing it. Here, God is allowing divorce in cases of abandonment, cases in which uh, a non-Christian is deserting or abandoning the marriage. Maybe a situation in which uh, the, this now mixed marriage is so different from the original marriage that the non-Christian wants out, doesn't want anything more to do with their spouse, and doesn't want to remain in the marriage. And in situations like this, Paul is saying, you should allow that spouse to go if they abandon you, and you should not feel obligated to hang on to that marriage to trust God even in this. Friends, divorce, while never God's original intention, is at times biblically permitted, and is at times even sanctioned by God. When that is, and sometimes is a hard call to make, let me encourage you not to make this call on your own, but to bring other Christians into this conversation with you as you seek to Follow God and to be faithful to him and to his commands and faithful to his word. I encourage you to to pursue counsel from pastors and and elders in this. Uh, I remember having some of the most difficult elders meetings in days past as an elder at different churches trying to sort out whether to give counsel or encouragement or even to permit or allow a member to pursue a divorce. Those are hard calls to make and ones that would sometimes take hours for elders and pastors who are steeped in in the Bible to to sort out and to make the call on. Let me encourage you, friends, to not make a decision like this alone. Friends, as well, for those of us who are married, for those of us who are single, for those of us who are seeking to be faithful members of Emmanuel Church, let let me make an application for us as a church when it comes to divorce. We want to be the kinds of Christians that take marriage seriously because we understand what it points to, the eternal relationship that God has entered into with his people. But we don't want to hold up marriage to such a high esteem or or hold it up in such a way that we would be unkind to those who are divorced. We don't want to be the kind of people that look down our noses at people who come through our doors who are hurting from difficult marriage situations or even from divorces. We want to be the kind of loving community that on the one hand can hold up marriage as a good thing, hold up marriage as something to be treasured and pursued and protected, and yet at the same time to be able to love all of the people who come through our doors who are hurting and in need of help. It's going to It's going to be something that we have to develop in terms of the culture of our church, but I hope we can be the kind of loving community that helps couples that are struggling, but even helps those that are coming broken from difficult divorces or marriage situations and to love each one that comes and to be able to help them to heal. I pray that we can do this. Now, as we think about how we apply this as a church, I want to make some applications, both for those of us who are single and then for those of us who are married. For those of us who are single, we encourage you all To consider a passage like this as you look forward to marriage. And I hope this wouldn't cause you to not want to enter into marriage because of the high standard. But at the same time to take it seriously. Let me encourage you, single brothers and sisters, to not date non-Christians. You realize how difficult that would make your life to be married to a non-Christian. And while it is something that uh, Paul here says that there is grace for, for those who who are in a relationship like that that they didn't intend... You should not enter into a relationship like this intentionally. And it may be that God is gracious. It may be that he allows you, even in your stupid decisions of marrying a non-Christian, to somehow see his grace at work in saving your non-Christian spouse after you sinned against Him by marrying somebody who wasn't a Christian. But just because God sometimes redeems difficult situations doesn't give us permission to enter into marriages unlawfully. Encourage you not to even consider dating somebody who's not a Christian, and we will talk about this more in the the weeks ahead. Let me encourage you, single members, to take it upon yourself to encourage married couples in the church, specifically in their marriages. You know, you have permission, single person, to ask married people, how is marriage going? You don't have to be married to be an encouragement to somebody in marriage. And you don't have to have gone through exactly what someone else has gone through in order to be a blessing to them. And this is something that I can say, my wife can say, in our own lives we have a a wonderful history of single men and women having mutually encouraging relationships with us even as we were married and being a help to us in our marriage. I remember at times, young single men asking me questions about the way I was relating to my wife or to my kids and lovingly calling me out encouraging me to repent of those things and to actually apologize to my wife or kids in the way that I spoke to them. Uh, I can look back to my wife going through a miscarriage at a time when I was out of town and a single friend called her up, seemingly out of the blue, clearly led by God's spirit, as my wife was on the way to the hospital. And it was a single sister Who sat by her bedside and read scripture to her, prayed with her, just sat with her, was present with her, and was an instrument of Christ's love to to my wife, even though she wasn't married, even though she didn't have kids. Single brothers and sisters, you can be a blessing to the married couples in this church if you're willing to display the unity and diversity that Christ has won for us by uniting a people. People of different ethnic background, different marriage situations, different ages. God loves having a diverse people, but I want to encourage you, singles, to not think that you should only be hanging out with the singles in the church and not able to have relationships with married couples. And let me encourage you to encourage them in their marriages. Let me encourage you as well to learn from married couples, especially as you consider marriage in the future. Prepare for that now by spending time with married couples and in their homes, learning from some faithful examples. And if you see a faithful example of couples being faithful and loving each other, let me encourage you to to, to draw near to such people, to learn from them. We would love for there to be the kind of culture in our church where we are all able to learn from each other and be mutually encouraging to each other in such a way that all of us are able to grow into uh, looking more like Christ. Well, we'll talk more to the singles in the weeks to come. I wanna speak lastly to to us who are married here. I've seen marriages end in divorce. It's a heartbreaking thing to watch as a pastor. But in each of those divorces, there were patterns that demonstrated an unhealthy trajectory. So I wanna highlight for us some of those patterns. These are some patterns that demonstrate an unhealthy trajectory in marriage. One is a habit of isolation. Married couples do not pursue as a habit isolation, a situation in which no one knows what's going on in your marriage. You're not living your life in community with other Christians. You're off by yourself, acting self-sufficient. I don't know any couple that hasn't had a difficult season in marriage. It's not new. And don't feel isolated and alone when things aren't perfect. No, that's the exact time when you need to draw near to God's people and the community of the saints so that Satan doesn't get a foothold in your marriage or even in your soul as well. The marriages that have survived through difficult seasons that I've watched, even those that have gone on to thrive, have more often been those marriages that are living in the light of communion. Satan loves for marriages to be and to feel isolated and to forget God's goodness and to avoid God's help. A second pattern that demonstrates an unhealthy trajectory is that of having a spirit of unteachability, in which one or both people in the marriage are unteachable and live without counsel or accountability. They feel no one has anything to offer me, they only think of themselves in terms of having much to offer others. They have this attitude of I'm never wrong or I never have anything to learn from others. I have it all figured out, which works until everything falls apart. And with that unteachability, that usually leads to shifting the blame on the other person. Now, what does the Bible say about the unteachable? What's behind the unteachable spirit? Why? Right. What's the biblical category in the book of Proverbs? The fool. The one who rejects wisdom and godly counsel the solution here is to humbly pursue counsel and encouragement to pursue others in your life that you can learn from and can help you to grow i think as christians we should consider the other spirit-filled christians in our church and consider all of them in such a way that we should think of each person as there's there's something that everyone here can teach me that's going to be so good for you as a christian but particularly in marriage another Pattern that demonstrates an unhealthy trajectory is the lack of prioritizing your own relationship with God. Your marriage, brothers and sisters, is only as strong as each person's relationship with God in that marriage. Symptom, a symptom of this is to put the burden for your happiness on your spouse. But God has made us to find our happiness in Him. And he is the source of all goodness, and he should be the source of our joy, the primary source of our joy. If we put the burden of our joy and happiness on our spouse, we will crush them with impossible expectations. Friends, let me encourage you in marriage to find your delight in God first and foremost. And don't place the undue burden of your happiness on your spouse. They may be able to contribute some aspects of happiness, but they can't ultimately make you happy. They won't be able to carry that burden. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but these kinds of things, they apply to everyone, even to the singles, to circle back. So whether you're married or not, single brothers and sisters, you should be humble. You should be teachable. You should live in, light of, in the light of community, and you should seek your happiness only primarily in the Lord. And while pursuing these things will help married couples in their marriages, they will also help every Christian to live a fruitful and faithful Christian life. Now there's hope, even for difficult marriages. I've seen marriages come back from the brink. A Few practical encouragements on how to foster marriage. Let me encourage you first and foremost to draw near to the Lord, friends. If you wanna have a happy marriage, draw near to the Lord. Spend time with your own personal relationship with the Lord. And before you work on your marriage, make sure that your relationship with God is in a good place. Secondly, Let me encourage you, married couples, tend your garden. There's an image in Song of Songs of your marriage relationship being a garden. You need to spend time investing in that marriage, in that garden. Now if you see, if you're walking about Fullerton and you see a tended garden, do you think to yourself that happened all by itself? No, if you see a beautiful garden, you know that that demonstrates hours of toil and labor. A garden doesn't stay beautiful without work. And the same thing is true in a marriage relationship. We need to pursue it. We need to, married couples, pursue one another in love. Seek to encourage each other spiritually. Seek to communicate, to talk. To talk always, to talk often. To invest time in your marriage. It's good work. It's often hard work, but like gardening, It's rewarding work too. And at times, and this is a final one, spend some time weeding your garden. You need to spend some time fighting sin individually, but also spend time working together on the things that divide you or the things that come between you or work on uprooting habits that harm your marriage or sins that plague your marriage. You need to work on the the weeding work of uprooting the things that are uh, having a negative effect on your marriage. We encourage you to take time to do this. And to know that if your marriage is going well, it's not because it happened accidentally. But because of of the work that, by the Spirit's help, God has helped you to do. Friends, we should conclude. As we think about marriage, all of us should first and foremost look to Christ and to the relationship, the eternal one, that he's won for us on the cross. And we should look to our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God as we understand our marriage. And then we should seek, as those of us who are married, to be a faithful reflection of it, as much as we are able to, as much as depends on us. And friends, married and single, we should seek as a church, to help each other, to treasure marriage, to pursue it, and to protect it. Pray that God helps us to do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the love that you have One for us in Christ. Thank you that when you enter into a covenant relationship with your people, it is for eternity. Thank you that you keep every promise to your covenant people. Lord, we pray that you would help us in some small way to reflect what that's like in our own marriages. Pray that you would help us to do this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.